Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heroes of the Land. Today, I sit down with farmer A.Y. Katzoff. He lives in Eish Kodesh in the Shomron. He has a fascinating story. It was just a couple of years ago that he rescued a few Ethiopian Jews through Kenya, South Sudan, and really a crazy journey. He got arrested a couple of times. At one point, he was facing 40 years in prison. Um, really a fascinating story. He's really incredibly brave uh, person. He just went out, heard there were people in need, and he went out for, you know, a couple of year journey uh, all over Africa and Israel, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, really, really unbelievable stuff. So here it is. Today's episode is brought to you by Karen Ashvias. We will hear more about them later in the episode. But now let's get to it. I'm Yisrael Yudkowski. You are listening to Foundations Podcast. I heard you have this incredible story about rescuing uh, some Jewish girls from Ethiopia. So I would want to just jump right into it. Um, let's just say that there were there were two. We, we found out that there were two girls, two sisters, Ethiopian Jewish sisters, that they were sold to South Sudan for cows. And um, they, they, when they were about twelve years old. And the story, like, really touched my heart. Um, I thought about my two oldest daughters, and I thought if, God forbid, something would happen to them, and there would be nobody that could help them. You know how I could only hope and pray that somebody would go out there and help them. And I kind of made a decision. At the time, I was in Ethiopia when I heard the story, and their, their mother told it to me. And she broke down crying while she was saying it. And it's not like she was looking to tell me. It was I kind of bumped into her, and I had to, to get the story out of her. She didn't even want to talk about it. And when she started talking about it, she kind of broke down crying. How how long uh, since the the mother saw the daughters? About uh, ten years. Wow. Yeah. What happened was, if we go through the whole story from the beginning, so the mother, who's a Jewish Ethiopian girl, grew up in a Jewish uh, Ethiopian village, northern Ethiopia near Gondar. Uh, she was born in the, in the 70s, and uh, sometime in the 80s, she was uh, about maybe a 14-year-old girl, and she was on the way to Israel with her whole family, Operation Moses. And her family, you know, walked from northern Gondar, northern Ethiopia, through Sudan, and then at the time, Operation Moses, what happened was, was they waited in Sudan, in Gadareth and Rakuba and other villages there. The Red Cross built these camps for the Ethiopian refugees that were fleeing the, the um, war that was going on at the time. And the Mossad agents came and they found them and they brought them to Port Sudan where they built a diving center. And in the day they would dive and at night they would smuggle out the Ethiopian Jews through the Red Sea. Uh, they had a ship that was in international waters, and they brought them to Sharm el-Sheikh, which at the time was still Israel. And then from Sharm el-Sheikh, they flew them to Israel. So her family made it to Israel, and she was uh, she was working there. And um, it's not clear exactly what happened, but basically, it's not exactly clear. 
But at the, at the end of the day, she was in prison for for killing someone. Wow. This is on, still in Sudan? In Sudan, in Gadara. I think she's on death row. Wow, so she didn't even make it. Her family made it to Israel. They're supposed she... to kill her there. And uh, what happened was is the head of the prison um, basically paid money to the family and bought her out. Now her brother came back looking for her as a Mossad agent. And he showed up at the prison. And her name wasn't even on the paper. Uh, like she never showed up to the prison. And usually when something like that happens, that means that they died in prison. Mostly a 14-year-old Ethiopian girl shows up in a Sudanese prison. They usually don't come out alive. And what happened was, is she, the reason why her name wasn't on is she gave a different name. She didn't want to have any connection. They didn't want them to know that she's Jewish. So instead of the name Tuavit, she gave the name Tuwiyah. Tuwiyah is an Arab name. And in Sudan, they're Arabs. Uh, it's, it's divided. North Sudan is Arab, South Sudan is tribal. Um, and she she left the prison and she the head of the prison married her. And she had her first child and they named her um, in the Dinka language because her husband's from the Dinka tribe, uh, Piat, or in Arabic Taibe, or in Hebrew Tova. Um, because like as well, you know, she's alive and she's out of the prison. And then the second daughter um, was Abduk or um, Susie. And they had other children. And if we fast forward, uh, basically when these two girls were 12 years old, they were sold to South Sudan. The oldest uh, girl, Piat, she was married off, uh, sold to a man named Hamis. And they had their first child. They named her Ayen. Ayen is actually the first cow that was paid for the, um, his wife. And you named the daughter after that cow because, like, you missed the cow. Like that. How, uh, how long ago was this? What, what year did this take place? This happened about, um, I would say, 15 years ago, something like that. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy that these things like still happen still and it's yeah, like that's tradition. That's the tradition in South Sudan. It's the way it's what people do. That you pay a wife with cows. Um, that's the tradition there, still today. And uh, let's just say Fia was not treat was was not she wasn't treated too well. Um, she was beaten, which is also the tradition there. And she took her baby again, and she ran away to her mother. And this is a couple days of traveling, about a week of traveling. It's from uh, Rimbek uh, all the way to Gadar. And the husband basically went after her and with the police took her out because the wife's not allowed to run away. And brings her back to the village. And ever since, for about 10 years, they disconnected to the mother. They don't really speak to the mother. There's a point where the mother doesn't even know if she's alive. The second sister is a similar story. And the mother's telling me this. And I said, I'll do whatever I can to try to find them. Did I really believe I would find them? Middle of, you know, South Sudan, a rugged place. No electricity, no water. Very slight chance. But I said, I'll do whatever, you know, I can. We did a lot of work. I actually... Um, 
I bought the brother who is in Ethiopia a smartphone so he can start trying to Facebook look for them. They're not on Facebook, but he they don't have smartphones. Um, one of them doesn't have a phone at all. The other later on we found out she had a phone. But um, he finds her through different friends that he went to school with. And they told her, yeah, she's in Juba. She's working in Juba. She has three children. which is not living with her husband. And I call her, and I start talking to her in Arabic. She only speaks Arabic. Oh, you speak Arabic as well? I speak Arabic. And um, I start talking to her. We start trying to think of ways how to, how to help her, how to get her out. Um, that was the first time she found out she was Jewish. And she, she told me later on that she learned always about the stories about the Jews leaving Egypt. And for her, just finding out that she's Jewish, she felt like an uplifting, like a connection to God. And then she she felt like like the Jews in Egypt when they dreamt about leaving. But then she's like, yeah, but that's them for me. I'll never leave. I don't really have a chance. There's no way it's ever going to happen to me. And it was just like in a dream. And basically, I'm not going to go into all the details, but you know, we tried different ways. And at the end, I flew down to Uganda. And I met somebody that helps children go from Uganda, from South Sudan to Uganda for school. Because in South Sudan, the school situation is much harder. A lot of kids are not in school. And through that organization, we're supposed to bring them out to, to the schools there. And it was a long time, and we're waiting at the border of South Sudan and Uganda. Um, it was the end of 2018, December 2018, and it was already like past midnight. Uh, and it was very hot, humid, middle of the night, you could barely breathe. And we're at the bus stop where they're supposed to cross, and they're not crossing. Like the buses come, but no, like different people come out, not them. And we lost connection already for over 12 hours. We don't even know where they are. We're thinking the worst. Maybe the they fo- were followed by their family. Maybe they were arrested. Remember, they don't even have papers. So maybe our guy wasn't able to get them across. South Sudan, there's a lot of civil wars. You, you can't even drive from Juba to the border without like patrols. Maybe they were kidnapped in the middle. Maybe they were, who knows what. The tribal wars, the, the Dinka fight, this tribe, that tribe. Like anything could have happened. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and we're at this bus stop, so I start walking around, and it's pitch black, there's no lights, and there's hundreds of people just sleeping on the floor, waiting for like the morning bus. And I'm thinking maybe they came earlier, and they fell asleep and went to sleep. And I'm like looking through families, stepping through them. You know, I stepped on somebody by mistake, and I'm with my, trying to, like, on my flat phone flashlight trying to figure it out, and people start getting upset at me. Who's this guy walking around? And I'm the only white person there. And it's, it's just scary. Some people start screaming at me, and then the guard comes you know, with his gun. What are you doing here? I, tried to, I had my guy, and my guys explained to him in the local Ugandan language. And then we see a bus, and we see the two girls walk, come off the bus. And I remember we run to them from excitement. And uh, her back was facing to us, and I touched one of them on the shoulder from behind, and she turns around, and she starts screaming. She's never seen a white person before. Wow, that's crazy. And in their tradition, they learned that white people are cannibals. They eat people. And uh, she was scared. And she had to calm her down, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm uh, Harun, the one talking to you on the phone. And um, and then they... uh, 
And we were like, wait, where are the kids? These are just the two daughters of the mother that you met earlier. Exactly. The grandchildren weren't there. Yeah. We didn't understand why. We said, are they on the bus still? Should we go get them? And they didn't want to tell us, but basically they tried to take the kids and the family suspected that they would want to take their kids. You know, in the West, the default is children are with the mother. In places like that, it's not. The default is the kids are with uncles, grandparents, something like that, not with the mother necessarily. And we understood that they left without their kids. They said at least they'll save their lives. And I remember we took them back to the hotel, and they, they didn't speak the language, only Arabic and Dinka. And we tried, you know, different ways to try to get the kids. Um, one way is we tried, uh, we called up, like, the uncles, and they said, no problem, you want the kids? Take them. Come give us $50 per kid, and they're yours. And we had a guy that we said, he brought the money, and the guy took the money and said, okay, now $100. We understood that they were playing games with us. And the other kids, um, the father, you know, so we talked to the father and said, listen, they could get free school and free education, um, medical, everything, because these kids weren't even in school. The medical situation was not good. Living in a mud hut. And he said, that's great, but I just have to go take advice from the local witch. That's what they do there where they go to like the local witch. And they go to the local witch, which says that your wife's family is trying to steal the kids. Don't send them. So we didn't send the kids. We waited about a week. And then we said, you know what? We'll take them at least to Ethiopia, where their mom still was, the grandmother. And we'll work on the kids. And we took them through Uganda, um, across through Kenya, um, South Ethiopia, all the way up through Addis Ababa into Gondar. It's uh, about eight days of traveling wow. on buses. This is just you and the kids? The two girls. Mm. Yeah, each place there's a different story crossing the borders every time something. I remember one border, the hardest border, was from, from Kenya to Ethiopia. So you find a guy that was willing to take them around uh, with a motorcycle. And he says, I want uh, 2500 for each girl. And that's a lot of money, 2500 I'm thinking about them like it's their lives, you know? Like, you just have to, as soon as once they're in Ethiopia, their mom is there, you know? They'll get there. It's like final border. So I'm thinking, you know what? Okay, what can I do? And they're like, wait, 2500 what? He's like, Kenya, Kenya shillings. I did fast calculation. And it's like a couple dollars. <laughs> I'm like, listen, it's a lot of money. I don't know. Like I said, it's $2,500. If he knew how much I was willing to pay. <laughs> yeah. And we finally got to their mother now to see the sight of their mom reuniting with his, her daughters after about 10 years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. with her just for that moment. It's unbelievable. Reunited daughter with her mom. You know, anybody who has children. And imagine not seeing their children for so long, not knowing if they're alive, not knowing if they're okay. And I remember coming back to Israel, and I met uh, with the head of Binyamin. He was the one who was, you know, like helping with the bureaucracy in Israel to get them permits to come to Israel because they're right of return. As Jews, they have the right of return. And wants to do like a l'chaim. He's like, no l'chaim. 
I'm like, but look, you know, I showed him the video of the reun you know, how they reunited. He's like, the kids are still there. We don't leave anyone behind. He's like, yeah, but it's a first step. The kids, it'll take, it's a little more complicated. It'll take longer. It's also legally, it's more complicated. He said, we don't leave anyone behind. Until we finish the job, we're not stopping. So we're trying. And then, um, basically, we, a guy called the father. And he was told him these words. He answered this time because for a long time he wasn't answering. Finally answered. He said, why let your children die in South Sudan when they could live in Uganda or somewhere else with school and health and everything? And the father was in shock. And he said, how do you know my daughter died? And what happened is, is um, the oldest daughter, Piat, had three children. Ayen, they had, she had a boy and she had a baby when it was five years old. And that morning, she wasn't feeling well, and she died. Probably malaria. She walked outside, it was hot, she kind of fainted, they put her in her bed, and she never woke up. What, the five-year-old? First of all, we had to call the mom and tell her. We had to break her the news that, her, that she's never going to see her daughter again. Which is the worst news you could ever tell anyone. But that kind of made a switch to the, to the father. And the father agreed, you know what, I'll send my children. And even that, it wasn't so simple. He said, we sent him money, and then disappeared. And we sent the money again, and then we said, okay, no more money, we'll just give him the bus ticket. We're not going to send him money for a bus, we're going to give him the actual ticket. And then he said, oh, I can't leave because I owe somebody money. I punched somebody in the face and broke their teeth, and I, if I don't give them $250, so they can't leave. And... $250 in South Sudan is a lot of money. Just so you should understand, like, he was making then about $17 a month. Wow. As a government worker. And everybody told me, don't give him the money. Like he just two years worth of a, of a payment. Yeah. They said, don't give him the money. He's just trying to rob you. And uh, I remember it was Friday night. It was Friday night, and uh, my phone rings. And, you know, I'm Shomer Shabbat, but I look at it, it's my guy from Uganda, it's Pikuach Nefesh. And um, it was the middle of Kiddush. So I go in the back room, and I said, what's the story? And he's like, I have indication that they're going to leave. I think they're going to leave uh, tonight. The father with the kids. To come meet you, to come uh, bring to, the kids to Uganda. To yeah. So Shabbos morning, it's very weird. I get in my car and I drive to the airport. It's very weird to be in the airport on Shabbos. I speak Kuach Nefesh. Two Jewish kids. The end of the world. And I flew. And I tried as much as I can, the least like Chil Shabbos, whatever. Whatever I could do, Bishinu. I did Bishinu. And uh, I flew to land in Entebbe. And just as a Jew landing in Entebbe, you know, you remember the whole Entebbe, Entebbe rescue story, yeah. and everything. And you see that big letters on Tevin International Airport. Uh, we waited, and again he didn't come. And then we waited uh, another day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And I started checking flights to go back. I'm like, that yeah, was a waste of time. Go Chavez, didn't work out. What could I do? And when I was like checking flights to get back, again there was an indication that he's finally leaving again. He kept on playing games. So then uh, he finally came, and we took the kids. And then the idea, again, was to bring them through Kenya, 
Ethiopia to their mom, and then hopefully by then we'll get the right permits to bring them to Israel. To bring the right uh, all the the whole family, the kids yeah. and the mothers to Israel. Yeah, and uh, we brought them to Kenya, Ethiopia, and then halfway through Ethiopia, we went through a bunch of checkpoints, and then one of the the boys wasn't feeling well. Uh, the boy, there was a grown boy, and um, his eyes like had like white coming out of it, and he's very skinny. And we stopped at a, like a medical clinic, and the nurse is like, "Listen, I don't know if he's gonna make it. Give him to the hospital." And then I had somebody that said, "Listen, you could take a little plane, a small charter." You know, like a four-seater, and we'll take you to Ethiopia. So I was like, you know, instead of traveling for another couple days, whatever, another five days, you know, I could take an hour flight. No-brainer. So it's a small airport, and that was a mistake. Let's give you a tip. If you ever need to smuggle kids, stick to land transportation. <laughs> They, were oh, they, they thought they thought you're uh, kidnapping these kids. Yeah, there's there's, there's uh, a lot of sadly there's a lot of child trafficking for all different reasons. A lot in Kenya, a lot all over, and they're they're trying to crack down on it. These countries for a lot of reasons. One of them is there's different UN committees and uh, money that they could get to if they prove that they're cracking down on child trafficking. The truth is, is in these a lot of these places you see it. You actually see it. It's not like like you think they're trying to crack down, crack down on the cases that are right in front of your faces. Like you go to the markets there and you see really sad stuff. But they decided, and then once they caught me, and they like talked to like the head person and the immigrations in the country. So that that was it. They locked me up with the kids. And uh, before they took my phone, I texted basically every connection that I had, tried something. My Israel connection, my official Israel connection from the agency, wrote me an official message saying that we have nothing to do with you. And that what you did could be considered um, an international child trafficking and we can't help you. So until then, like, you have Israel on your back, so, like, you feel like, you know, all of a sudden that happens, boom, you're alone. Just like that. That's when all of a sudden you're like, oh my, this is real. Just sitting there with this is three, four years ago, you're just sitting there in the jail for child trafficking, and could just imagine uh, what a punishment they could give to someone they, they catch. Yeah, they told me. They said it's 20 years minimum for child trafficking, and I have two kids, so it's 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. So how, like, how did you end up getting out? So one of my connections, a guy named um, David Avery, he does a lot of Israel-Africa advocacy. And he was in touch with a pastor there, Pastor Dennis, who's also a politician. And he comes, and obviously I hear him like speaking outside. I didn't even know who he was, and he's speaking Swahili. And then like they open the door, and I see him, and he's standing there with like this, like you know, traditional like uh, robe type thing, but with a big Kenya pin. And he's speaking, and he's like, uh, yes, him. And I was like, I don't know, okay, what's this guy? And basically, he says that how he knows me, and he's my friend, and we work together, and we help kids. Da, da, da. Okay, this is weird. And he took me out. He signed a million Kenya shillings bail, that if I disappear, he'll have to pay the money. And he, of course, my passport, so I had to leave, and 
his even his like ID had to give in. And I had to show up every day to immigrations. Every day, show up till they figure out what to do. And he didn't leave me. He was with me the whole time. It was a couple of weeks. And you were going in every day? Every day. Almost every day we showed up. You know, not Sunday, Saturday, they're closed. But And uh, there's an investigator. You sit there for hours in the hallway. And they investigate. Blah, blah, blah. In the meantime, I went to the Israeli embassy. Before I went to the Israeli embassy, I did a fixer-upper with the kids. Now, it's interesting because I got them dinner. And they're like, why are you getting me food? We ate already breakfast. They're used to eating once a day. Crazy. And in breakfast, the girl sees this orange, and she's like, Bodukal, which means orange in Arabic. And her eyes lit up like it's an ice cream sundae. And I asked her, have you ever seen one? And she's like, Akid, like, of course. I'm like, have you ever tasted it? And she's like, la, like, I've never tasted it. And I'm like, you want it? She's like, Mumbi, like, you, I could? And I was like, sure. And she didn't know what to do with it. She just took the thing and, like, looked at it. And I had to show her how to feel it. And, like, eat. She, you know, I divided off and she took one thing she took a little nibble and she put it down she was like it It was weird it was just different it was weird and um, and then at dinner I made her use a fork the first time using a fork I was like so excited they were like playing with it they used to eat it with their hands and went to the Israeli embassy I was sure you know like the movies you show up I imagined the helicopter come down the ladder Climb up, you know. With the kids go straight to yeah, Israel. Right pick to up Israel. the parents on the way. And... Exactly. <laughs> no. First of all, real they, life is not I, like the movies, I guess. <laughs> first of all, they didn't even let me in at the beginning because I didn't have IDs. I had no oh, ID. Still by the government. Yeah. Now the way it works is that there's a local Kenya Kenya guard, and then only you pass through him, then you get to the Israeli guard. And I try to convince him, just call the Israeli guard, call the guy. And he's like, no, you don't have papers. There's no way. This is Israeli embassy. Israeli embassy is very strict. I'm like, listen, just call. And I see the camera. And I'm like going like this to the camera. I'm like, oh, you know. It's boiling hot in the sun. The sun is beating on you. The humid is unbelievable. You're just all sweat. And and there's mosquitoes in the air. And, and there's like trucks driving by with the smoke. And you just like can't even think anymore. And you didn't bring water. You didn't think you'd be standing out there for so long. You started dehydrating. The boy, the boy was, the kids the kid are was com- feeling better at no, this point? No, he was sick. He's sick. sick. The kids are complaining. I got him eye drops for his eye. So his eyes were a little bit better, but he's still very weak. The kids are complaining. They're like, let's get out of it. What are we doing here? You know, I'm like babysitting. The, kid, the boy's eight years old. The girl's ten. And um, finally, you know, all of a sudden I see an Israeli guard. And I'm like calling him in Hebrew. He's like standing on the top with an M16, you know, like for tech. And I'm like, oh, it's really I, my bro, you know. And finally, some Israeli guard comes up and he's like, Masipu. And I start telling him in Hebrew. And he's like, what? He starts asking me different questions in Hebrew. And then uh, he tells like, okay, he's okay. Come with me. I go with him. I go into the little office. Um, and it's kind of like, remember in Israel, used to be like the intercoms, these like old off-white phones in the entrance to the building. You pick up, you yeah. press the button. That's what they have to speak to the uh, consul. Mm-hmm. So there's like the deputy consul there. And she's standing behind bulletproof glass. At least there's air conditioning in the room. And I'm talking and she's like pointing to the wall. And I see this phone. I pick it up. And you have to press the button and talk. And I tried to... And I remember explaining to her the story. And she's sitting there. You know, this is great. First of all, it's nice to like speak Hebrew. You know, after so long being stuck there, you know, in Israeli. And she just sits there with her mouth open, looks at me, looks at the kids like... I'm trying to understand, is this real? 
is this fake? Is this really happening? And I was like, my connection Israel told, told me that he let you guys know I'm coming. He didn't let you know. And she's like, nobody spoke to me. And she's like, wait here. She goes somewhere. She comes back and she said the same words of the message that I got. I'm sorry, I can't help you. This could be international kidnapping and you have to leave. Then security guard opens the door and asks me to leave. I said, listen, you got some AC here. It works. A couple more minutes, yeah, please. exactly what I said. Just let me, a couple minutes just to think what my next step are. And he's like, this is in a waiting room. Leave. And I was kicked out of the Israeli embassy. Back into the street. Pastor Dennis uh, came, picked us up, and he's like, I have an idea, I have a guy. And he takes us to the South Sudanese embassy in Kenya. Now, the South Sudanese embassy is like the biggest embassy of South Sudan. South Sudan country, it's a new country, it started in Kenya. And we go in there, we meet his guy, and right away, he's like, no, this is way above my pay grade. And then we go to the deputy ambassador, and then he takes us into the ambassador's room. And then we're sitting there, kind of like, there's this couch, I'm sitting over here, across from me is the ambassador, and then over here are the two kids, Pastor Dennis over here, and then the whole room is full of every, basically, embassy worker that came to watch the show, what's going on, who is with our kids. And the ambassador starts speaking to the kids in Dinka. Now Dinka, only the Dinka tribe speaks Dinka. And it happens to be that the ambassador is Dinka. And the kids are... From the same tribe where the kids came from. And he's speaking to them in Dinka. And right away, he basically looks at me. He's like, you stole my kids. What did the kids These tell them? These are my responsibility. Well. It's Dinka. I don't speak a word <laughs> of Dinka. And I tried to explain to him. No, I'm taking every word I would say. He cut me off. And he's really angry. And he basically looks at me and he's like, you are arrested in the name of South Sudan. Because by international law, an embassy is like the country. And you will not leave here and the kids will not leave here. So I remember thinking to myself like, the rock bottom. The was rock arrested bottom. once, finally managed to get out even though the Israelis didn't help. Went to the Israeli embassy, again, no help. Hopefully, South Sudanese embassy will help you, and now they arrest you again. Like, it's crazy. And I'm arrested, like, you know, gets, and now on the way to the embassy, I get a phone call from work. It's a guy, his name is Roy. He's like, hey, why? What's your name? Uh, what's her name? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, come on, man. Nobody goes so long. There must be a girl involved. What's her name? It's like, dude, this is a real story. I'm with the kids. Like, you want me to send you pictures of the kids? Like, this is real. He's like, listen, listen, you don't have to tell me any election. I'll just tell you what. If you don't get back soon, I'm telling you, you're not going to have a job. Not just not have a job, you're not going to have a wife and kids either. And I know from inside. So basically, I feel like everything's falling apart. Israeli embassy kicks me out. My job basically let me know, lets me know I'm fired. My wife, like, he just hasn't been answering me for a while. And now this guy tells me. You're arrested again. Yeah. And I remember I basically like went black. And it wasn't just because the guy in front of me was very black, but I just, I, I remember like being so angry. I was angry at God and angry at myself. I was angry at myself for being so stupid 
and childish to even dream, to even dare to dream that I would do something so crazy. And then I was angry at God. I was like, God, these are not my kids. These are your kids. They're your Jewish kids. I have my own. I have six kids of my own, six biological kids of my own. And then I, and I said, you're the one who promised in, in Yeshayahu. I will tell, tell to the north, give them back, and to the south, do not hold them back, for I will bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Talking about Kibbutz Galiot, the ten tribes coming back. And I said, these are these are your, your boys and your sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, right now, from the south. Here they are. And if you don't want them, that's not my problem. I did my side. I remember being angry, angry at God. It's been quite a journey over the past few months at Karen Hashvis. With Shmita on the horizon, we span the land of Israel, reaching out to hundreds of farmers, urging them to commit themselves to leave their fields. With the promise of support, Thousands of farmers pledge to lay down their tools and submit themselves to a higher calling. At the same time, fundraising efforts were launched across the globe for a call to partner with the heroic farmers. Claudius Rawl answered the call and came through like never before. And then, in the twilight hours of the new year, farmers on 363 settlements walked away from their fields. They did the impossible. They abandoned their land and gave up their livelihood. We reached a historic milestone. For the first time in almost 2,000 years, 51% of privately owned Jewish agricultural land is lying fallow. The achievement is unprecedented. But we're far from done. We raised enough for the farmers to commit, but it's not enough to get them through the full year. If we don't continually support the farmers, some may buckle under the burden. The sacrifice may become too large, too heavy, and they may not be able to pull through. The farmers still need our support. We gave them our word. We won't let them down. And I remember while I was feeling that anger and kind of like basically gave up to, you know, imagine like, you know, the lawyers and trying to get me out of prison and whatever. All of a sudden, Pastor Dennis starts talking. And he was quiet this whole time. And he says very politely in a political way to the ambassador, he says, Your Excellency. Now, you know, in Israel, we talk to ambassadors, it's like, Achi, you know? And he's like, Your Excellency, the reason why these children are able to go to Israel. Now, until now, I didn't mention the word Israel. I didn't mention the word Jew. You know, growing up Jewish, you have to be careful, you know, what you say and who likes you and who doesn't like you. For him, he's Especially a, in these countries, you have full-on anti-Semite, you know, completely yeah, done. exactly. So, you don't even mention it. Now, Pastor Dennis is an evangelical Christian. And when I asked him, when he took me out, I said, why are you helping me? You don't know me. He says, you are a Jew going to Judea. And God promised anyone who helps Jew 
go to Judea, will be blessed. That was it. That was the reason why. Enough. And that's why he stayed with me the whole time. And here he tells the ambassador, he says the reason why they're able to go to Israel, and I'm thinking to myself, why are you mentioning Israel? Like, we're not <laughs> yeah, like we're not enough trouble, man. And then he says even the worst, even makes it worse. Because they are from Jewish roots. What? Also Israel, also Jewish. Come on, man. All of a sudden, the ambassador almost turns red. And he's like, why are you telling this to me? No, sorry. There he goes. He's like, you think I don't know? This is history. You cannot make this up. We know about the Habasha Jews, which is the Ethiopian Jews, that came through our land to go to Israel. The question is, why just these children and not all of the other children? And I was like, well, let's start with these two and then we'll work with the other ones. And he's like, this is written in the Bible about the ten tribes returning to the land. And he points to his desk, the Bible that's on his desk. You cannot make this up. And then he brings me to the shelf and he shows me the book of Shimon Peres. Um, not, not too small for a big dream, something like that. And he's like, what is, what is your trick? What is your secret? And he starts telling me about how South Sudan is similar to Israel. And he's really from the Ten Tribes. And how could it be that Israel is also a young country and succeeded. And South Sudan is also a young country with the same Arab enemy. That's the way he called it. But he is not able to succeed. What is the secret? How? And we become friends. And he's the one who starts helping me the most. And from here, everything started turning around. It's crazy how like at the lowest point. The that's lowest rock just, bottom. Boom. It was under rock bottom. We're like dug under the rock. And we still go through a long process. We'll fast forward like all the details. But at the end of the day, also Uganda, they said basically if I bring the father, and the father signs that I could take the kids, that I could take them. So I bring the father. It wasn't so simple. It wasn't easy. We have to do a bunch of different things. And he agrees that if I take them to Israel, because he understands that they go to school, um, and there's, you know, potential for, you know. I remember telling him, like, talking about how much money my daughters make when they babysit. And he was like, Count, are you for real? <laughs> like, is this real? And I bought him a smartphone. I bought him a brand name clothes. I showed him what the Oilam Hazik could be like <laughs> in a lot of different ways. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, you know, there's a chance. And, um, but then they said that they wanted, they needed him to get paper, the kids to get papers. Finally, Israel recognized us. We went back to the embassy. Israel recognized us. And they said, listen, you want to take the kids? Very simple. If they get passports and birth certificates. Now, these kids never had birth certificates. And they're signed and stamped by the minister of uh, exterior, like um, Secretary of State himself, and the father signs, then you could take the kids to Israel. That's the orders we got from headquarters in Israel. It's kind of mission impossible. I remember I was very upset, and then that deputy, the same girl, the deputy uh, basically told me, listen, it's hard, but at least you know what to do. 
I remember that night I also, I was, uh, I was scared. I, th- I understood if they'd go back to South Sudan, the kids will probably never come back. But, you know, we made a very good impression on the father. And the kids are already used to eating food and, you know, good things. And They know what an orange is, finally. By then they knew a lot more than just an orange, <laughs> by then. Uh, I remember I took the kids to Burger King. Now, I've, kosher, so I ordered lettuce, basically. Instead of salad, the tachas was lettuce with some cucumbers. And then the kids started taking from my salad, just because that's you what they You have a burger, you know, oh, touching kids. like lettuce. Yeah, really. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was not pashut. Let's just say I lost a lot of weight. And they went to South Sudan. I went to Ethiopia to prepare the mother. Uh, and what happened was is so it was one day two days three days about five days father's almost not answering the phone when he does answer he says what's with the papers you're supposed to get the papers oh it's raining today it's raining and like what type of excuses and then they started making fun of me you actually believed him and then when they found out how much money I gave him they're like are you crazy he's going to live with this money for the next couple of years he doesn't need to go anywhere and again, I gave up. I said, it's not happening. I remember sitting down, giving up. And then I was like thinking to myself, like, you know how many mistakes I made and God never gave up on me. So how could I give up? And I said, I got to try one more thing. I'm like, just what? I'm like, just to be yotzi, kind of, you know, like one more thing, one thing. I'm thinking, what, what, what? And I remembered that when we were in Kenya, and somebody, David, told us about there's a pastor from South Sudan that you should meet. And we brought him to breakfast and we met the kids and he blessed the kids and everything. And, you know, he said maybe one day. And I remember I gave him, uh, I think it was $200. I said, this is for the kids in South Sudan. You know, you should do good things about it, whatever it was. And I was like, what is that pastor? He's a pastor in South Sudan, in Juba. This is the second pastor, not yeah, the one that the second was... one that I met. So I... I said, you know what? I'll call him. I'll try. It's my shtadlus, you know? And now you know how when you have to call your in-laws Arab Shabbos, and you like you let it ring once, and then you hang up. Oh, I called. They didn't answer. What could I do, you know? <laughs> I said, look, I'll do shtadlus. But he answered on the first ring. Oh, come on. Now, you have to understand, South Sudan, <laughs> nobody answered, because there's never reception. There's never, the power's always down. You know, there's always trouble. They don't have batteries for their phone. You have to leave your phone at the store to charge it, because you don't have power at home. And... and yeah, answers. I call. That's my luck, you know? And I was like telling him the story. He's like, I actually have a connection with the State Department, with the external ministry. And within a couple hours, he sends me pictures of birth certificates signed by the Secretary of State. Um, and he sends me pictures of the documents signed, just like that. And then we planned to go meet them. We were in Gondar, so we flew to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And they were supposed to fly also to the capital to meet us. And all of a sudden, on the way to the airport, the pastor says, wait, they need $200 for the visas. I was like, listen, I don't have, like, how am I, I can wire, I can't wire you money, you know, like, I can have a guy, it'll take a day, you know, to give it to you, whatever. He's like, remember that money you gave me? I'll give it to them for the visas. So basically, you're heading to Addis Ababa to, for the children to reunite with their parents. In Addis Ababa, I'm with the mother. And we're going to the embassy in Addis Ababa because the there's no embassy in Gondar. 
in Aris Abba, there's an embassy, and that's where they could sign and get visas to go to Israel. Mm-hmm. And they, he, and then I, after they're on the plane and it takes off, and I asked the, you know, this pastor from South Sudan, I said, what can I do to help? You know, this is your time, ask. And he says, I want one thing. Give me a blessing in the name of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's all he wanted. And the interesting thing is the reason why he was in Kenya is because he has a bad case of diabetes. And, it can, and they, don't, they can't really treat it in South Sudan, so he travels by bus a couple days every couple months to, um, to Kenya, to Nairobi, Kenya, to treat it. And that's because of that, that's how I was able to meet him. He happened wow. to be there. So we go to the embassy. We show up there. It's Friday afternoon. They stayed open, you know, for us. And I'm like, birth certificate, passports. Yalla, yalla, Shabbos <laughs> is coming. I got to get home for Shabbos. Shabbatayom. It's been a couple months now. I haven't been home for a long time. <laughs> you know? What else do you need? I got, like, I got you everything you asked for. You know, yeah, I got it. I got the Where, Mission Impossible. The plane? I got Mission. It was Mission Impossible, and we got it. And I remember the consul looking. I remember his face, and he's like shaking his head. And I'm like, "You can't do that. You can't do that." You know, and he's like, "Listen, you got everything, but because we're in Ethiopia, you need it stamped by Ethiopian Immigration." Come on. Exactly what I said. I'm like, okay, I'll go there now. He's like, ah, they're closed already. So, um, so this is Thursday. So I said, okay, I'll go tomorrow morning. It was Thursday. I said, I'll go tomorrow morning, Friday morning. I showed up there early Friday morning. And there were people in tents sleeping outside, waiting to get in. Hundreds of people. And then I remembered him telling me, I'm like, yeah, I'll be the first thing in the morning. He's like, Take your time. You're in Africa. Everything goes slow here. And I show up there. I see hundreds of people camped out. We thought way. here in Israel, we go to the embassy. We wait an hour in line. It's, uh, you know, waiting a long time. Uh, go wait for a week there. Yeah. We camp out. And there's no numbers. There's no numbers. You just kind of show up. I finally, through the back door, I have my suit and my Israeli flag. And I said, I'm a diplomat coming from the Israel embassy. Yeah, you know, and... Uh, one guy's like, show me your card. I was like, oh, I don't have it. They'd be called the embassy. Basically, I get in. I get in, packed. Again, no numbers. There's people packed there, just kind of squished, trying to edge towards the door to get whatever paper they needed. Can't imagine. Can't imagine. No air conditioning. Flies, mosquitoes, barely breathe. Finally, you know, I get to the guy. It's all a story. Da, da, da. He brings me into the small office. I'm like, yalla, 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 get the stamp. He looks at it. He's like, I can't stamp it. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I can only stamp it. Because you're in Ethiopia, you need the, the South Sudanese ambassador to stamp it first. I was like, but I have the actual, like, Secretary of State. The, the... Yeah, but you're in Ethiopia. It doesn't work by the Secretary of State. You need the ambassador. I thought maybe he wanted, like, a special visa fee or something like that. Nobody to talk to. It didn't work. Go downstairs. I take. I just like pay him a couple of bucks under the table. That's what I thought he wanted. I ended up uh, go downstairs. 
take a cab. Now, these aren't cabs. These cabs are called cabs. You know, windows are broken. They're in bumper-to-bumper traffic, hot, humid. Trucks, huge trucks right next to you with their mufflers just loading up the car. You cross the town. We get to the embassy, and there's no embassy. They moved to a new address. Nobody knows where it is. You start looking for it. You find it. I get there. I go in. And I'm sitting there, just me, and like the girl there behind the desk, I'm like looking around, looking around. I'm like, am I waiting? You know, what's going on? And I'm like, you know, I need the ambassador to sign on this, these papers. And she's like, oh yeah, the ambassador's not here. So I'm waiting and I come back, you know, and I'm like, what's going on? And when is he coming? And she's like, I don't know. I'm like, will he come today? Maybe yes, maybe no. Basically what happened was we started a conversation and she tells me that she has a very similar case, that she has kids also that don't live by her. Um, in South Sudan. And um, and then I told her I'm helping this case. Da, da, da. She's like, let me see what I can do. She takes the paper, she goes upstairs, comes back down, and they're, and they're stamped. I take them, cab's waiting outside. I go How back. did she get it? She just snuck into a... No, she got <laughs> found some guy, not the ambassador, to stamp it, and that's it. I paid whatever I paid. I go back to the place. I show them the stamp. They look at it, and they're like, no, this is a square stamp. You need a circle stamp. I really thought he was like, you know, pulling something. But uh, he, so I'm like, show me, show me what you need, you know. So he shows me on the screen the, the circle snap. I take a picture of it. I go back down. In the meantime, I call the amb- Israel ambassador to South Sudan. He calls the ambassador over there and he comes special to show up. I go upstairs. He's about to sign and then his assistant comes in and takes the stamp from him. And they start fighting with each other. They're like, you can't stamp. You're supposed to do a square stamp, not a circle stamp, and they want a circle. We'll explain to Ethiopia. We do the circle, the square. Basically, the circle is for like personal letters, and the square is for documents. So this is a document, and Ethiopia didn't know. They said they'll tell them, and then you start saying, "Wait, how could you even stamp? Maybe he's stealing the kids." And they start, and then not they start again. talking in Arabic, yeah. And then basically, I tell them, "Listen, I'm bringing these children to the chosen land." I already understood. Oh, now you are now already in it. <laughs> while I'm explaining, while I'm saying it, the ambassador takes a stamp from his advisor. Stamps and signs. He says, take these kids to the, to the chosen land and do a prayer for me as well. I take the paper, go back to the cab. This cab is so happy, you know, and doesn't drive a Westerner every day. <laughs> and now he's like going back and forth. Basically just, I didn't tell him to wait. He just waits there, you know, he doesn't care. Brings him back. I get there. The office is closed. They're at lunch break. Now it's Friday, okay? That's the... the Maybe before it was Thursday, now it's Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon, the Israeli embassy closes and doesn't open till Monday. I call the council in the Israeli embassy. He calls the guy from Ethiopia. He comes back as he's like licking his fingers from the injury. I'm really upset. Who takes him out of lunch break? They have a two-hour lunch break. Wow. And you wonder, wonder why. You and know? they all take a lunch break at the same time. <laughs> yeah. He goes to the office. And then he's like, starts looking at it and he starts, you know, causing trouble. He's like, give me the phone, give him the phone. I give him the phone. The Israeli guy, like, you know, schmoozes him up, whatever. And he like, he's like, what is it? What country? Why are you guys like helping these two kids? I don't get it, you know, like, and he stamps, takes out of the wooden drawer these stamps, stamps the papers, gives them to me. In the meantime, they're holding the Israeli embassy open. It's already like an hour past when they're supposed to close. That's with the security and everything. We show up there with the mom and the father and the kids. The father got in a fight with the mom, almost threw her off the balcony. And basically, you know, we're there. We're trying to, like, you know, hold the situation. And the guy stamps and gives us the visas. And they have the visas. 
In the meantime, I get noticed that my connection is also for the mother gets her her entry entry as well. So now I have the visas for the kids and the mother as well is also able to make Aliyah through like a different thing. We're able to get a flight for Sunday. So I'm thinking, how am I supposed to keep them busy from Friday afternoon till Sunday? Throughout all of Shabbos, we just kept them busy. Took him out at night. Restaurants, parties, whatever it was, as long as he's busy. Sunday morning, we're about to go finally to the airport. Finally, finally, finally. And I take her document, and I take the kid's document, and because her document was through something else, her family in Israel changed her name. They didn't want anybody, like, they were embarrassed from the South Sudanese background roots. So they gave her Ethiopian names. Instead of um, Piat, uh, they gave her Eutebiat, Ethiopian name. Instead of her father, Bokoriel, it's Asafe, also Ethiopian name. But the kids had all the South Sudanese. Now her, it says, place born in Ethiopia, they're South Sudan. Now, their, their mother's name is one thing, and... No, this is the mother, but it has something else. So it's not even the same name. So I call my connection in the startup in here in Israel. And they say, and I, he says, listen, first of all, you didn't tell me anything. I don't know about this. Second of all, whatever you do, don't go to the airport with them. You're going to have the child trafficking. Uh, yeah, and even worse, because when it comes to Israel, Israel will think that it's not a real case. And because and, it's a classic thing where somebody gets... A mom gets a chokashvut, right of return, and then somebody pays her to bring their kids. Mm. Classic. And then what happens is they just freeze the case and they'll months till, till you even unfreeze it. What do I do? Did a lot of davening. Said every like parakets a hill I knew by heart. We show up at the airport and I tell the mom, I said, listen, remember when we were in Ethiopia? And you saw that in the Ethiopian Jewish community, they were baking these weird uh, things on the fire. And I explained to you what matzah is. And I said, when the Jewish people need to leave Egypt, it was taking them forever. They didn't believe, they didn't believe. And finally, when the time came, I said, now is your time. I said, today you're landing in Israel. Today you're going to land in Israel, and my friend is going to be there waiting for you. And she looks at me, and she looks at the kids, and she says, what about you and the kids? I said, I don't know. We might land today also. We might land in a week. We might land in a month. But you go today. She says goodbye to me. She says goodbye to the kids. She goes to the airport. About 45 minutes later, she calls me up. She tells me, honestly, about 10 to I'm at gate 32, waiting to board the plane. I said, okay, now it's time to pray. Literally, you now you also go to the airport the same flight but separate without the mother so exactly and I keep on telling the kids if anybody stops us and asks them where the mom is just say Israel where's mom in Israel we practice where's mom in Israel where's mom in Israel because why worse to worse if, if they stop us at least the mom will land in Israel now once the mom lands in Israel she could change her name da 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 whatever it needs and she could come back and get them but let her land in Israel because when you land in Israel she makes aliyah you don't land in Israel. So the most important that she gets through. If we get stuck, we'll be stuck. We go through the ticketing, we go through security. Then we get to passport control. Passport control, the guy there, his job is basically make sure people like me don't come through. And we give the passports. And I see him standing up. And he looks down. He's looking at the kids. He's looking at me. He's going like this. And he's like, are these your kids? 
Boom. It hit me. I felt like Mamish, like Rosh Hashanah. I'm standing in front of Yom Adin, Sefer Achaim or Sefer Amavit is right in front of me. And here he goes. He either stamps me in the Book of Life or the Book of No Return. I remember, like, again, I went black. I started saying, Al Tehillim, Vinam, Adonai, Lehinu, Alehinu, Maserin, Kona, Lehinu, Maserin, Kanim. Saying to myself, not knowing what to answer. I was just kind of hoping that it would be like, these are not the droids you are looking for, and he'll just let me pass. And now all of a sudden he's asking me, and what am I supposed like to do? Like you say, yeah, I mean, you're right, they're black, like obviously not. The father I'm just hoping that you know different names, and if you say they're not my children, okay, so what are you doing with them? So it's a lose lose situation, yeah. And all of a sudden, I kind of like came back to myself and I took my jacket and I had the Israeli flag pin on it because I learned already that Israel is a positive thing. And I said, These are Israel's children, and they sent me here to bring them home. And the guy sits down, goes like this, and I hear the stamp on the passport. And as he's panting, he's going like this, and he's like, who is this country that sends people all around the world to bring their kids? I remember taking the kids' hands, and you don't know if like you should walk fast just to get away, but then look suspicious, or to walk slow, but you walk slow, they might change their mind. I remember you get to the escalator that brings you up to the floor of the gates and all of a sudden I hear the girl screaming and her hand slips out of my hand and I look down, she's never seen moving steps before. I have to pick the boy up in one hand and start going the opposite direction down the escalator, try to take her, just pushing me away and everybody from Passport Control is looking at us and I'm like, yeah, kids, you know how they are. <laughs> and I grabbed her, grabbed him and we went up the steps and um, her mom was there praying on the chair. We boarded the plane and we landed in Israel. Wow. And when we got off the plane, there's a girl from the agency with a big sign that said, Welcome home. Welcome home, Olim. And I explained to her in Arabic. And that was the first time where she realized it's not that she's coming to a better place or something like that. No, she came home. This is her home. She's Jewish. So yeah. And she met Aliyah. And then... I didn't know, but in Israel, the law is when you make Aliyah, you get a cab that takes you home. Hmm. Israel pays for a taxi. And they paid for a taxi right here to Ishkodesh. And the taxi driver is Moroccan. And he looks back and he starts speaking to her in Arabic, Moroccan Jew. And she's like, sister, welcome home. This is your home. And we showed up here. She lived here for a while. She's at Absorption Center up north. And uh, they started a new life here. Wow. That's it. And girl, you still meet up with them, I'm sure, once from time a month. to time? Wow, once a month. Once a month, I'm there. Wow. It's incredible. How, how like, does it feel to, to, like, have been through something like this? Listen, it's not simple. Little Pashut. Uh, I went through a lot. Um, a lot of trauma. A lot of PTSD. A lot of, it's not so easy. It's very hard times. It broke a couple, couple times. Still get flashbacks sometimes. But uh, when I go visit them, when they come here and visit me, and I see the kids happy, and I see them playing, and I see them healthy, and speaking Hebrew, coming Israeli, succeeding at school, 
I'll just I just look at them and and it's it's the most pleasure, the most fulfillment that anybody could ever feel just to look at them and see them succeeding. What really like when you heard the story from like the mother the that she didn't see her two daughters in ten years. Like, well, obviously everyone hears stories and different stuff, and you know, you know. So you try to help as much as possible. You give tzedakah, you give a little bit of your time, donations. But like, what? Like to actually go and like a whole rescue mission and to try to find them and like what? Like what gave you that push? What was the like motivation behind it? So again, I didn't know if I would actually really succeed doing it, but um, I said all I have to do is try. I gotta do. I have to try. Do my shadows, do what I could do. And um, the same thing, as I said, you know, if my daughter's was in trouble and somebody would hear about it, would I want him to do his shadows? Would I want him to give some staka? Wow. And at the end of the day, you know, when there's Makom there's nobody else out there. You gotta do what you gotta do. It's a little, I think that's, you know, what you did is a little bit more than just, you know, got to do what you got to do. I don't know. I think, I think that every person has to. The sad thing, I don't know if it's sad or not, but, you know, when I was there, you kind of go out and try to get a lot of people to help you in different ways. And a lot of good people out there, like when I needed that flight, you know, or hotels, costs, everything, different friends that I had, they in the second paid without even thinking twice I had like friends that they uh, they couldn't sleep at night because they didn't know where I was um, and only now I realized it that then I didn't understand you know I was too busy on surviving myself and at the end of the day you have to do what you have to do you know to help somebody else and all of a sudden, you realize, you know, where the, who are the people that were that were willing to say, "Listen, I'll do. It. If you want, I'll drop everything and fly down and help you." I didn't think it would help, so I told them not to. Just another guy to be in prison with me. Yeah, so no, I'm... really. And sometimes when you see a lot of people, then it looks like child trafficking, like a group or organization. You know, it's like sometimes it's better not to have that. But uh, but people, you know, and then you see like who's helped, who doesn't help, who all of a sudden disappears, and who's you know there for you, who wants to help you, and. What would you give maybe a little advice for someone, you know, because a lot of people, like I said, you know, we always have different stuff that come up and helping and stuff, uh, you know, or dreams people have or stuff they want to do or a new job or open a business or, but just to, like you actually, you know, saw someone in need, something that needs to happen and, you know, you went out and you just did it. So, so uh, what, like, to be more of a doer, what would you give, like, advice for someone? I used to think a lot, like, when you hear the stories of uh, smuggling Jews out of, you know, concentration camps in Europe or out of um, Syria and Lebanon in the, in the, you know, founding of the country or even out of Morocco in the 50s and out of ghettos. And I used to think to myself, if I was back then, would I have done it or not? You know, the, the Bereshit ship, the ships that came into Israel? Nice to think, would I have gone out and risked myself? Now, we look back at these people, oh, they were heroes. But at the time, their moms would scream at them, what are you doing endangering yourself? Their wife or kids or girlfriends or whoever it was would be like, how can you do this? It's irresponsible, da, da, da. So at the time, everybody is against you. Everybody explains to you how you're not going to succeed and how it's wrong and foolish. 
That's what everybody always tells you. Only after the fact, people come and say, oh, wow. Not just that. People say, oh, yeah, I would have done it like this. They start telling you how they would have done it better and all that. The, the same guys who, when you did it, told you that you shouldn't do it, you know, after the success. The same guys come over and like, oh, me, yeah, sure I would uh, do it. And then they start telling you how they would have done it better. Now, the thing is, is that, so first of all, like, you have to think about what would you have done back in the day. And then you realize, oh, yeah, I would have for sure helped the underground or the makhtarat or whatever it was. And then you say, listen, today every person has their own type of whatever it is. You know, if it's helping somebody in a different country or if it's helping someone in your own neighborhood. Or if it's helping a friend or a friend's child. You know, starting from smiling to your neighbor or friend or somebody who's less, you know, capable to actually helping them. Giving them tools, giving them whatever you can, you know. And you start with that. Start with that, you know, and to, to go out of yourself and help somebody else. And, uh, you know, if that's what you could do, so that's what you do. And uh, dare to dream. Dare to dream. Mm-hmm. And, and know when you dream, everybody's going to tell you, oh, you're dreaming, it's childish. And um, you're being life a is not a movie. People are going to tell you that. Stick to the positive people and uh, do what you believe. Well, yeah, yeah. You need a, you need a lot of amuna, and you have to be focused and know what you want, and know that you're going to break down. Many times in the middle, I broke down at night and said, "That's it. It's over. I can't do it anymore." In the morning, I say, "You know what? I'll try one more day, one more day." And then at night, I'm like, "I can't do this. I've given up. I can't cry." And then the next morning, I'm like, "You know what?" Give it one more day. One more day. Sometimes one more hour even. Well, look, looking back now, you know, after the fact now that you see that they have their own life, looking back, you you know, you'd be in the same situation. You would do it over again? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's hard. Not for sure. Let's just say I would do it differently, maybe. <laughs> Um, maybe, you know, we're here for the Shemitah program, so maybe just to get a little bit of Shemitah in, uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about the farm here, what you do. I know you have a vineyard, so tell us a little bit about that and how uh, Shemitah affects it. So about 11 years ago when I came here and um, read in Rosh Hashanah, the Nevu of Yirmiyahu, Lamed Aleph, Otitik Ramin Bagashem 1, talks about the Jews going to exile and then says one day they will come back and they will plant vineyards in the mountains of Shomron. And I said, look at these this Nevoah, let's be part of this prophecy. A lot of people told Yirmiyahu, you're dreaming, you're childish, you're foolish, what do you mean? Plant vineyards in the mountains of Shomron. First of all, I don't know when the Jews are coming back. Second of all, it's mountains, it's bedrock. How will it grow? Yirmiyahu said, Yirmiyahu said, we planted vineyards, and now people say that the vineyards here are the highest quality grapes to make the best wine. And it took a while, and it wasn't water, problem with irrigation. And finally, um, the grapes started growing, and we made wine, and people tasted it. And a lot of people said this is the best wine they've ever tasted. Now we make about 5,000 bottles a year. Most wow. of the wine, just from our vineyard, it's all exported. Most of it is pre-sold before it's bottled already. Out of the 5,000, close to 4,000 are sold before they're even bottled. Now, well, what is the company called? It's called Settlers. Settlers. But I have a brand that people do private labeling. 
they do a minimum of two cases, usually two to four cases, so 24 to 48 bottles, and they get their own private label. In the back, it has a story with the Pasuk of Yirmiyahu. And when they do it, they also take part, they're partners in the vineyard. So they, they're at least 50 square feet, so they do all the mitzvahs of the land, like a chikopeh, a trumas, maestros, and now Shemitah. And wow. then Shemitah. And 222 harvest is Shemitah, which means it's hefker. Anybody can come and take it, which is not easy. Not easy. You know, all of a sudden to miss a harvest, it's a lot of income that you're missing. But that's the mitzvah. That's the mitzvah wow. here. There's certain things we still do in the vineyard. Um, you know, it needs irrigation. It's actually getting water right now. I have to change the switch, though, because we don't have enough water pressure. So I do half and then another half. And um, there's certain things we do, but the fruit are half care. Well, and also, how do you keep yourself busy? Well, that's, that's my really side good. job. My main job is I work for the Benjamin Regional Council, a fundraise, and we collect money for a lot of different projects, um, different rescue projects also that we're doing. And also, we help a lot of teens at risk, different programs. Um, we just built a nice teen center. And then we do like the classic shoals, mikvahs, different tourist attractions, but mostly teens at risk courses. And we're doing now a course where we're teaching middle school kids coding. That's Computer. the future. Yeah. Talk about languages, you know, you go to school and you learn French, which might be important. Imagine learning as a kid the language of language writing of programming. So you teach programming? I don't know anything about programming. But um, I met somebody who made a lot of money programming, and he was actually a surgeon. And he got into a car accident, and uh, then he had to, kind of in the middle of life, try to learn something else. And with his medical background, he wrote up programs that helps hospitals all over the U.S. And he wanted to help the kids here in Binyamin, and we just did a pilot program middle school, you know, 12, 13 years old. And uh, they're amazing. They wrote programs and they built these, like, cars with their program that, like a little car, you know, their program teaches it, you know, to drive straight, right, left. It has sensors close to the wall. Wow. It's not, yeah. And they did this That's all, which crazy. is unbelievable, yeah. And now we're, we have 17 schools in Benjamin and we're trying to now raise money to do this program in all of the schools of Benjamin. And what, what brought you here to live out, you know, out in the middle oh, of nowhere? Beautiful nature, green trees, out in the open, clean air, and it's Eretz Yisrael, you know, it's Eretz Yisrael. This is where most of the stories happen, in the Tanakh, right here in the heart of Israel, right by Shiloh. Shiloh is the capital of Israel for 369 years before Jerusalem. Mishkan Shiloh, yeah. Mishkan Shiloh, Eli, Shmuel, Filaschana, all happened right here. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. It was a really incredible story. I hope, you know, we need more more of uh, the doers, really, people to to help. It's really incredible thing that, you know, Hashem, you know, gave you this mission to do. It's, it's literally mm-hmm. straight out of a movie. I mean, <laughs> even crazier. In the movie, Javi gets arrested, and then they, he gets <laughs> out, and then you got to keep on getting arrested, and they kick you out like no one's on your side. And I just, you know. Listen, you do what you have to do. God, um... Whatever he thinks is right, we'll do the rest. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. your time, and uh, let's talk with everything.
If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you would like to help us spread the word, give this video a thumbs up and a five star review. Also, don't forget to ask your friends to subscribe as well. If you would like to partner with us and sponsor an episode, send an email to info at jfoundations.com. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. We will see you in the next video.